0: I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning, and that if you do, you will turn in them to Matthew 13. Our passage for this morning from Matthew 13 can be found on page 818 of the Bibles that are provided for you in the backs of the chairs. If one of those would serve you, please use it, and if it would serve you to take it home and keep it, or give it to somebody else, we'd love for you to do that. We can replace those. We'd love for you to have a copy of the scriptures in your hands or put it in someone else's if you're able to do that. Matthew 13, page 118 in the Bible's in the chairs. Well, one of my kids' favorite things about having Kate's parents in town these last couple of weeks has been that when it's time for bed, grandma tells a story. That's been the case ever, every time we go to visit them or the times that they've come to visit us. In fact, it's so much ingrained in them that one my in-laws took one night to just go out and stay somewhere else, have some fun uh, on Tuesday night. And Corbin was lying in bed saying, where's grandma to tell me a story? She's a really good storyteller, and she loves telling our kids Bible stories. And those Bible stories captivate her grandkids. But stories captivate all of us, really, don't they? I think it's largely in part because the whole universe's purpose and existence is tied to a great story, the story of God's redemption of a broken and sinful world. I think it's been hardwired into all of us as image bearers of God to love stories. And it's precisely because good stories are enjoyable and effective, that they are vehicles through which messages are often effectively communicated. That's part of why a lot of filmmakers make movies, because they have a message that they want to convey. (coughs) Stories are powerful tools in the hands of a good teacher, and Jesus is the greatest teacher that there ever was. And so we come to a portion of the narrative of Matthew's gospel where we see Jesus begin to use stories as teaching tools. These stories are called parables. There's a lot of definitions that you can find of what a parable is, and here are a few on the screen for you. You see it involves comparison. It can be an example of something. It is uh, a fictitious narrative. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Perhaps you've heard that one before, or a pithy and instructive saying with some sort of likeness and comparison involved. The Greek word there for parable has the idea of comparison behind it which is why you find Jesus using parables often to compare things such as the kingdom of heaven being like a grain of mustard seed which we'll see at the end of towards the middle I should say of this chapter in verse 31. And that's all important for us to note. but here's how I want to boil it down for all of us as we begin to see some of the parables of Jesus. A simple story with a spiritual meaning. As I just indicated, there's a lot more to it than that, but for a simple boiled down definition of a parable, a simple story with a spiritual meaning. Matthew's gospel has 23 parables in it, Luke has more with 24, but Matthew has 11 that are unique to his gospel. And so there's a sense to which Matthew has the most. Parables are a big part of what the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write in his message of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so as such, we need to pay attention to them. It's going to be a lot of what we see. So... We've finished Summer in Psalms, we're done with Renewal Sunday last week, and we're jumping back into Matthew, and we're almost to the halfway point of the book. I don't know if you noticed this. We started on the final Sunday of November of 2021, and we're going to finish chapter 14, Lord willing, which is half the number of chapters in the book, on the final Sunday of November of twenty three. So maybe that means we'll finish the final Sunday of November of 2025, but we'll see. Either way, we're a good way in, and what we've seen so far has been encouraging, convicting, and astonishing for my own heart and life-changing for me. We've seen the narratives of the birth, of the miracles, of the ministry of Jesus. We've also seen the teaching of Jesus. Theologians call them Discourses, The discourses of Jesus. And we've seen two so far. The first one, of course, being his great sermon. The Sermon on the Mount, as it's known. The second being a discourse about the joys and sufferings that come from being one of his sent ones going to spread the gospel. But there are actually five discourses of Jesus in Matthew. And so we've got three to go. And today, we start the third discourse of jesus which consists primarily of parables and we're only going to briefly touch on the first parable today we're not going to dig in until next week before we dig into it want to take some time to examine what jesus said about parables in general the way matthew has laid it out for us in chapter 13 is quite interesting he introduces the parables in those first three verses there Then he records the first parable in the second part of verse 3 through verse 9. Then he records Jesus' teaching his disciples about the purpose of parables in response to their question about it in 10 through 17. And then Matthew records Jesus explaining the meaning of the first parable in 18 through 23. Then the second parable in 24 through 30. The third parable in 33 through 31. And then 34 through 35, Matthew puts his own words to the reasoning behind using parables. And as Matthew loves to do, He connects it to Old Testament prophecy. Then Jesus explains the meaning of the second parable in 36 through 43, and then the rest of the parables in this discourse follow. I find that pretty interesting. And we have to acknowledge that Matthew has laid it out this way deliberately under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so I'm not starting with... Just the explanation of the parables in these chunks of verses before digging into the first parable because I think Matthew should have done it that way. No, not at all. I just want to teach it this way for the sake of our congregation gathered here and now. But I think the reason that Matthew lays it out this way for us will become more clear as we go today. So let's just start. And I'd actually like to read verses 1 through 9 for us, even though we won't dig into that whole parable right now. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, some of you in this room have read this parable multiple times. Maybe dozens of times for some of you. And if you've read that passage dozens of times, you've probably read the verses that follow it, too, dozens of times. But I know that some of you in this room may have never even read this parable before. And for those of you who have, I want you to imagine that you just read that parable for the first time. What questions would you have after reading it? What impression would you have as to the point behind jesus telling it now imagine not just reading this parable for the first time but imagine hearing jesus speak this parable and not having a bible in your hands where you just read the next verses imagine standing near jesus hearing him say these things Maybe you're one of the 12 disciples. Maybe you're one in this large crowd that Matthew identifies in verse 2. Those who have gathered to hear this famous preacher and teacher from the podunk town of Nazareth who's been stirring up trouble with the Pharisees. You want to hear from this guy. Or maybe you've already heard him. Perhaps you heard the great sermon. Maybe you've just heard about things that he had said and taught and seems to you to be profound and earth-shattering, and he's about to teach again, and you're getting all geared up for it, and as you listen to what he starts to say, you're confused. Because he's not talking about the law, he's not talking about the prophets, he's not saying anything about the Pharisees, or about what it means to be a disciple. He tells this short story about a farmer, And his mixed results from having planted seeds. And then at the end, he says, in verse 9, He who has ears, let him hear. Which is a concluding remark that essentially means, Pay attention to what I have just said. And you're going, I don't even know exactly what he just said. You see, I think many of us Christians have gotten to the point of losing the sense of how strange it would have been to hear these parables without their interpretation. You read this parable, and there's nothing explicitly theological or doctrinal or even religious or spiritual at all here at face value. It's just this kind of random farming story. Now, I suppose if you yourself were a farmer, I would have... Perked your interest at first, but as soon as Jesus nails it with, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, you'd be left going, huh? Now we don't know exactly what the precise timing was here, whether Matthew is recording a snippet of a later conversation when the disciples come and ask him about the parables, or if Jesus said what he said, and then all you heard was the crickets chirping when people have no idea how to respond, and then some of the twelve circle around him and say, Jesus, what are you doing here? We don't know exactly. I tend to think that Matthew recorded it this way because that's the way that it happened, but can't be positive about that. But here's why I believe that it is at least recorded this way, even if the specifics of the timing aren't exact, because parables veil the secret aspects of God's kingdom. That's our first observation about these parables that Jesus would teach. In fact, it's exactly what Jesus says about it in response to his disciples' question. In verse 10, right after this parable, they come and say to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And then his answer is this. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. You, he says, my disciples, my followers, you are granted the gift of, of knowledge regarding the secrets of the kingdom of God. But to them, or those who aren't my disciples, those who aren't following me, they don't get to know these secrets. That's the immediate answer to their question of why use parables. This is incredible stuff. What happens to you if someone comes up to you or messages you in this day and age, and says, imagine you get a text from one of your friends, and it says, can you keep a secret? (laughs) Or, I've got to tell you something, but you have to promise that you won't tell anybody else. I'm guessing you perk up a little bit. Your attention gets a little sharper. If it's on text, you're waiting for the next one right after you say, yeah, I want to know. Maybe there's even a little bit of adrenaline or dopamine that starts to engage inside your body because secrets are exciting. They are exclusive. Being in the know regarding some secret makes you an insider. And friends, that's the issue here. It's the issue of being inside the kingdom or outside it. Those who are inside, those who are in Christ as our Brother Jonathan was saying in his mission partner update video, those who are in Christ have the kingdom of God revealed to them. Those who are outside Jesus have it concealed. As some, or maybe all of you know, just a few weeks ago, our family was in Pennsylvania for my sister's wedding. And the wedding was held in a beautiful old Catholic church that is now an evangelical gospel teaching church, which is very, very cool. Beautiful old building Christians worshiping inside it today. And one of the features of that building is its beautiful stained glass windows, which are just gorgeous. And one of the things, if you know anything about being inside a church with stained glass windows, is that when you're in that building where the glasses are stained glass, or the windows are stained glass, and the sunlight comes in through them, you're given a beautiful display of colors and whatever images those windows portray. But if you're outside that building and the light is shining on them, it doesn't work the same way. They might even look kind of bland and unimpressive and unnoticeable when you're outside a building with stained glass windows. As the kids today would say, it's sort of mid. (laughs) Teens just went. You may recall that at the end of chapter 12, Jesus's family was standing outside the house. It's been a while since we've been in this passage, but it's there in the context of our passage today. And I indicated in my sermon on that text several months ago now that Matthew's use of the word outside in that verse may have actually been a deliberate, thematic choice to indicate the spiritual outsideness of Jesus' family at that time just as much as their physical outsideness of that house at that moment. And interestingly, in that context, Matthew records the beginning of Jesus' parables, his disciples' questions about them, and his explanation of why he uses them, which has connotations of this issue of being inside or outside. In fact, what we have in verse 11 of chapter 13 here before us is the exact same event that mark records in his gospel in his chapter four where he shows jesus saying i have it on the screen for you it's the same event and he says to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of god but for those outside everything is in parables see that outside word it's not there in matthew but it is here in mark and it's the same event And so the issue here is an issue of whether or not you are inside the kingdom through faith in Jesus or outside it. The disciples ask, why speak in parables? Jesus says, because parables in part reveal the kingdom of God and conceal it. At the same time, parts of the kingdom must remain secret to outsiders while insiders like you are given the gift of knowing the secrets of the kingdom. But that might leave you wondering, what exactly does Jesus mean by the secrets of the kingdom? I think if you're a thoughtful person, you'd be thinking here something along the lines of, isn't the kingdom of God something that God wants and that we should want the whole world to know about? Well, I'm afraid the answer to that is yes and no. Let me try to explain this a little bit. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God certainly at least pertains to the rule of God in the world that he has created, which is most clearly revealed to us through Jesus. Now, there are other aspects of what we mean by the kingdom There are other aspects to God's plan to redeem sinners from the kingdom of this world, otherwise known as the kingdom of darkness, into his kingdom, the kingdom of light. For example, in Ephesians, Paul talks about the mystery of the gospel being the work of Jesus to live and die and rise so that his church would take the good news to the ends of the earth. Not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles too. And so that is also got to be part of what Jesus intends when he's talking about the secrets of the kingdom, the mystery of the gospel that Jesus has come to live, die, and rise so that the gospel may be spread to all the ends of the earth, not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. But in its most basic sense, when Jesus says things like the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is near, or the kingdom of heaven is here, as he said when he arrived on the scene, essentially what he's talking about is that God's revelation of his redemptive plan for the restoration of sinners back into a relationship with him which was previously hidden or not fully revealed is now revealed through jesus that's essentially what jesus is talking about here the secrets of the kingdom being revealed to some and concealed to others, is the revelation of God's plan to redeem sinners through Jesus, to break into this world and to bring back restoration into a relationship with him through Christ. Does that make sense? So what's at the center of what Jesus is referring to when he's talking about the secrets of the kingdom is that. That that which was previously hidden now revealed about God's plan to redeem sinners through the person and work of his son, Jesus the Christ. And friend, maybe you're listening to this and you are not inside when it comes to Jesus. Maybe you are standing outside, metaphorically, not quite sure yet if you want to be all in on Jesus. Let me just say this to you briefly. If you want in, Jesus will welcome you in. He simply wants you to trust in Him. When He arrived, proclaiming that the kingdom had arrived, He also said, repent and believe the gospel. In other words, turn from your sin, believe the good news that God has made the way for you to be saved. If that's you, Outside at this moment, please turn to Jesus today. And if you have questions about that, I'd be happy to talk with you after the service. But as I indicated just a moment ago, I wonder if all this talk of secrets continues to have you feeling a little bit uncomfortable. Isn't the truth about how to enter into the kingdom through faith in Jesus something that we want the whole world to know? Well, as I said, yes and no. On the one hand, the doors to the kingdom, as it were, are wide open to everyone who will believe. The problem is, not everyone will. Many choose to reject His call to humble themselves in repentance and dependence on Him. And that's where I think what Jesus says in the second part of verse 11 and through the second part of 12 into 15 continues to be a little jarring for us. The end of verse 11 To them, the secrets of the kingdom have not been given. Verse 12, For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, or those who are outsiders, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive for this people's heart has grown dull and with their eyes they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Here's part of what this means. It means that parables are partially a judgment from God. The disciples ask him why he's using parables, and his answer starts by saying that it's because it's a secret. And he says, you're allowed to know the secrets, but they aren't. Those who are outsiders. Well, who are those outsiders? Look at verse 13. It's those who look but do not see and hear but do not listen. Now I wonder if at first glance in this passage it might seem like the people that Jesus is referring to here are sort of victims of their circumstances. Those in need of rescuing because they've been afflicted with blindness and lack of ability to... Understand, And I think there's certainly a sense to which that's partially true, but there's much more to it. And that's where Jesus' reference to Isaiah here, which is found in Isaiah 6, comes in. Verses 14 and 15 speak of those that Isaiah was talking about who actually rejected God's revelation of himself and instead chose to pursue other False gods. They had seen and heard the message of the Lord in his prophets, in his law, but chose to turn away and plug their ears, so to speak, instead of receiving it with humble repentance. And so God effectively said to them through Isaiah, you are condemned to continue spiritual deafness and blindness. You see, friends, it's not simply a matter of being a victim of blindness and deafness. It's about being responsible for sin. Isaiah was prophesying. Jesus was speaking to a group of people who had in, that included those whose hearts were dull. Beginning of verse 15, these people's heart has grown dull. The CSB, if you have one of those in front of you today, uses the word calloused. Those who had chosen to close their eyes, the third line there of verse 15. In fact, look at what the end of, or that uh, fifth, sixth line, I believe it is, of verse 15, says that if they understood with their hearts, they would be recipients of his grace, of his spiritual healing. Now, as I studied this, this is obviously a, a very weighty and difficult thing to try to understand and articulate. And I came across an extended quote by one of my favorite commentators that I've been referring to in my study of Matthew. His name's Doug O'Donnell. I've got two slides worth of quote. It's not going to take forever, but it's a little bit longer than I usually share. And here it is Like those in Isaiah's day who repeatedly rebelled against their Creator and Redeemer, see Isaiah 1 through 5, those in Jesus' day, "...who have seen Jesus and heard his message, yet unrelentingly reject him, are punished by only seeing and hearing enough to find God's revelation in these parables to be nothing more than unsolvable riddles. For those spiritually calcified by persistent disbelief and obedience... God's word in Isaiah's prophecies and Christ's parables serves only to increase their blindness and deafness. Instead of being windows through which unbelievers could see the light of salvation in the face of Jesus, referring to 2 Corinthians 4, 6, these parables become closed doors that seal the entrance into the eternal kingdom of heaven. That's why I say that parables are partly judgment from God. And this is exactly what we've seen throughout Matthew's Gospel so far already, isn't it? Some respond to Jesus with faith and repentance, with trusting, obedience, while others would rather hold on to their earthly station, their worldly wisdom, their material wealth, than lose any of it for the sake of an eternity with Jesus. And so the people in Jesus' day, just like the people in Isaiah's day, and like so many in our day, choose their own way instead of humbling themselves before their creator. Israel chose to worship idols of their own making instead of being faithful to the covenant that God had graciously initiated with them. And those who had seen God's initiation of the new covenant through Jesus but rejected him are guilty of the same thing. And so the arrival of of the kingdom, the secrets, the mystery of the kingdom was to them, to those who rejected God's revelation is left unrevealed to them as part of their judgment for rejection. But parables are also partially a revelation from God. You see, it's not only concealed to those who refuse Jesus. It's also revealed to those who embrace Jesus. Parables are not just judgment. They're also grace. A gracious revelation to his people. That's what Jesus is saying at the beginning of 11 and 12. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Verse 12. To the one who has, more will be given. A sort of figure of speech there. Those who are already in, get more and it's what jesus is saying in verses 34 through 35 or what matthew excuse me is saying in verses 34 through 35 when he says all these things jesus said to the crowds in parables indeed he said nothing to them without a parable to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet i will open my mouth in parables i will utter what has been hidden i will reveal what has been hidden since the foundation of the world Jesus' purpose in using parables is partly so that those who have hardened themselves against him will remain in their condition unmoved by his descriptions of the kingdom because they don't understand it. But another part of Jesus' purpose is to reveal to his followers what otherwise would be secretive and frankly too mysterious to understand for those who aren't trusting in Jesus. So while it's partly an act of judgment, it's also partly an act of grace. And what grace it is. For God to intervene and remove the spiritual blindness of any sinner and reveal himself through his word to them is amazing. I always think in moments like these about testimonies that I've heard from various Christians about their conversion to following Christ, including reference to the fact that before they were converted, they would read the Bible and not understand what it meant. And then coming to Christ and suddenly their eyes being opened. And not perfectly understanding every square inch of all these words, but in comparison to before they believed much more clearly. Countless Christians, including my own mother, would include this in their explanation of the story of God's saving them by grace. Opening their eyes to understand the message of God's word revealing the good news about the coming of Christ to save sinners and restore them to God. Think about how undeserving it is for anyone to have their eyes opened like this. Think about the disciples who heard this in that very moment. Did these disciples deserve to be allowed to understand the mystery of the gospel? Did Peter deserve it? what about thomas who doubted what about matthew the crook tax collector what about judas who would later betray our lord now these guys had no business being in the kingdom of god based on their qualifications for leadership their religious devotion their spiritual piety no And so for Jesus to say to these 12 men, I am speaking in parables because the beauty of the gospel is for those whom I have chosen to follow me, is actually astonishingly gracious. But I still wonder if it's also at the same time for you a little jarring. Because by logical conclusion, this means that God has chosen some to be saved which then leaves others out and hearing this same jesus who previously has said things that gives his listeners the impression that he is a compassionate and gracious king and on a mission to save people then say that the reason he's speaking in parables is to make sure that some people don't understand it can be quite jarring but friends it is exactly what it means. In Christianity, we call it the doctrine of God's unconditional election. In other words, that God has graciously chosen, simply by grace, not based on any conditions that anybody could ever meet, to save sinners, some of them, from judgment. And it's a doctrine that can be quite tough to swallow or wrap our minds around but it is clearly and explicitly a biblical doctrine i've got three passages here on the screen for you that just briefly point to it matthew 24 same book we're in now but later on he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and he they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other then in first peter 1 peter an apostle of jesus christ to those who are elect Exiles of the dispersion. And then he's speaking of elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. James 2, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Each of these passages contains terminology regarding election and having been chosen, but there's no passage greater than Ephesians chapter 1. Would you turn to Ephesians chapter 1, please? Didn't want to put it on the screen. Want you to turn there yourself. Maybe scroll if you're using a device there yourself. Ephesians 1, 3 through 11. That's if you're going to use one of the Bibles in the chairs, that's page 976. This is what the Apostle Paul says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even And so, my friends, it is very much true. God has chosen some before the foundation of the world to be his. He predestined it, the scripture says. He didn't just have some sort of supernatural foresight to see what we would do. He ordained it himself. And not because of anything that we ever could do to deserve it, but by pure grace. And, friends, that's part of what's going on with parables. Some are given the secrets of the kingdom, while others are not. Those who have been chosen, Jesus' disciples, are recipients of his grace. In other words, coming to faith in Jesus and being given the revelation of the kingdom of God is a gift, a gracious gift. But I still think that some may be left wondering about this whole predestination, election, and chosen thing. It might seem a bit ungracious to those who aren't chosen. But here's where the words of C.S. Lewis are helpful. C.S. Lewis, if you don't know, is the guy who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Here's what he said. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. Those whom God graciously chooses to spiritual sight and salvation are those who respond to God in faith and repentance. Those whom God has not chosen are those that He has given over to their recalcitrant hard-heartedness. In other words, friends, you could say it this way. Those who ultimately come to the end of their days having never trusted in Jesus and repented will have only themselves to blame. No sinner... This is huge. No sinner that wants to come to Jesus will be turned away. Not a single one. I wonder if you've ever heard of a guy named John Calvin. He was one of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. And he has got sort of a reputation for being a person in church history who was rather zealous about the doctrine of unconditional election. In fact, there's a term in Christian doctrine and theology with his name on it, calvinism he did a lot of writing on it and in fact he came down quite strongly on the issue but did you know that he himself the one often attributed as being the strongest proponent of election and the sovereign choice of god between sinners and saints said this let us not inquire into a cause hidden and almost incomprehensible in the predestination of god Let us confess our insufficiency to comprehend many of his secrets. Ignorance of things we are not able or of which it is not lawful to know is learning. While the desire to know them is a species of madness. In other words, Calvin is saying some things are not fully understandable by us in our finite state. And to strain and stress over fully understanding and articulating them perfectly will drive you crazy because it's impossible. I actually heard someone um, yesterday, I think it was Dr. Timothy Keller, say something about how the ancients questioned these things far less than we do in our modern day because in our modern day we are obsessed with perfectly understanding everything post the Enlightenment and lots of other things in world history. But the ancients were just willing to say, well, of course I don't understand it because it's God that we're talking about here. So here we are back again to the question I posed at the beginning regarding why the parable comes first, then Jesus' explanation regarding why using parables, and then the interpretation of that parable. It's because it's supposed to be confusing for those who already find the whole Jesus thing to be primitive and offensive anyway. To those people, it's just random mumbo-jumbo about farming. But to the disciples, it's much more. Friends, the proper response for us to the questions that we have about election and the sovereignty of God in salvation, the proper response is to acknowledge the reality that in the Scriptures There is a ubiquitous and constant tension regarding the sovereignty of God in his gracious choice to save some and the responsibility of man in his choice to reject the call to believe. There's a tension there that's constant in the Scriptures. Responsibility of man, sovereignty of God, both at the same time. Now, it is possible to swing the pendulum as it were, of your doctrinal beliefs far over to one side and begin to be driven by logic more than by the text of Scripture itself, and then winding up in a camp of what some people would maybe call hyper-Calvinism, believing that since God is sovereign over salvation, there's no need to pray for the lost, there's no need to preach to the lost, there's no need to ever speak evangelistically because God's sovereign over all of it. That's not my deal. That's his. Friends, that is unbiblical and wrong. It's sinful, in fact. The Bible is clear that we need to preach, that we need to pray for the lost, that we need to speak to unbelievers about the good news of Christ's salvation every chance we get. You know, it's also possible to swing that doctrinal and theological pendulum the other way. I don't know if I went this way first or not. Whichever way the other way is and to then minimize the majesty and holiness of God by downplaying or trying to explain away God's wise and loving and powerful and just choice of those sinners that he calls to himself. And that's sinful too. It's true that man has responsibility for his choices, that he is a volitional being who acts... But it is not quite as simple as just stamping it with the free will button either. God's total sovereignty is part of the full picture as well. And so the Bible clearly teaches that God is sovereign over salvation, that he has chosen some to be brought into his kingdom while others he has not. And the Bible clearly teaches that all who reject him will be held accountable and responsible for that decision. And we have to hold both Intention, and believe them both. And I believe that as we hold them in tension, we will rejoice at the mysterious and majestic wisdom of God. Look at how Jesus finishes verses 16 through 17. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. What Jesus is saying here, in essence, is that the gift that these disciples are receiving is a huge privilege that should bring them joy. And it's not the only place in the Bible that this kind of thing is said. Interestingly, one of the men standing there at that moment was Peter. And he said something like this in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. I suspect this interaction with Jesus had a lot to do with the reason Peter put it that way. But friends, here's the point. Being a disciple of Jesus is reason for great joy. And if you are a follower of Jesus here today, remember that you don't deserve it. But it's been given to you by pure grace. That's why we stand and sing praise to God. That's why we serve however we can, no matter the sacrifice. So unbelievers should view parables in part as an invitation to respond to the call of God to believe on Christ and be saved. Perhaps you're here this morning or you're listening to a recording later and you read the scriptures and you just have no idea what in the world it's talking about. Friends, if you turn to Jesus in faith and repentance, you will know the glories and beauties of the kingdom of God. Christians, Christians, should view these parables in part as a reminder of the great privilege and joy it is to have been an undeserving recipient of the grace of God in Christ. Having once been blind and deaf spiritually, rejecting the Lord in our hearts because of our sin nature and our sinful choices, but still being granted the spiritual sight to see and respond. So friends, the kingdom of heaven is hidden from the elite who don't want Jesus or don't think they need him the faithless hard-hearted rebels who would rather go to hell than bow the knee to the benevolent and loving king jesus but while it's hidden from them it's clear to those who humble themselves and follow jesus in faith it was hidden from the religious and political and social elite both jew and gentile of jesus's day those who wouldn't let go of this world for the sake of the world to come, but it was revealed to fishermen and tax collector and the socially disregarded and downcast of the world. And same today. It's hidden now from the quote unquote successful of this world in this day, whose purpose centers on accumulating wealth, indulging sinful devices, and supporting or advancing the wisdom of this world. But it's revealed to the humble. To the modest and lowly, no matter who they are, who come to Him. Engineers in the public sector, teachers in the school districts, stay-at-home moms, electricians, whatever it might be. All who understand their need for salvation and embrace Jesus will be saved. And so may there not be one numbered among us who never turns to Jesus in saving faith. And may there be no Christian numbered among us who does not rejoice at the grace of God to reveal the kingdom to us. Let's pray. Lord, we do rejoice and we thank you. We pray that if there is one here today who has never turned to Jesus in faith and repentance, who has never embraced him as king, that today would be that day. We also pray that you would help those of us who are your children. To rejoice in your grace to us. And I pray that you would help us to understand these things, both the parables that we will continue to examine over time, as well as all the other difficult and mind bending, ununderstandable aspects of your teaching in the days and weeks to come. May Jesus be glorified in everything that we do and say in response to. Withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take just a few moments to continue quietly praying in our own hearts in response to God's word.